So our topic today is this notion of algorithmic thinking and computer science and kind of how this plugs into the modern world and what it hopefully means for you guys in the, in the trenches in the high schools and the middle schools. So there's this uh, thought out there. You can think about this a little bit. But if you compare Abraham, 21st century people, and Abraham Lincoln, who is Abraham Lincoln closer to in terms of... <laughs> So if we put Lincoln in here, be closer to the 21st century people, to Abraham, you can sort of argue back and forth, but there is at least an argument to be made that Abraham Lincoln, though he chronologically is closer to us, but in terms of the world in which he lives, is closer to the world of Abraham than the world in which we live. So why is this? Well, computers really driving a lot of it, and this is a chart that... Um, that tries to graphically portray Moore's Law. You may have heard of that the number of transistors in a given area doubles every 24 months. Uh, it was coined by Moore, one of the founders of Intel. And the interesting thing is the, the left vertical axis is a logarithmic scale. So even though this is sweeping up at better than linear, uh, we're going up by powers of 10 there. And so we're approaching kind of animal brains in terms of the density of the circuits on a silicon wafer. And if this continues, the you know, 2025-ish human brain is in sight in terms of that density. So there's a number of disruptions being driven by this uh, increasing computing capability. One is in communications. One's in data, data collection. One's in AI and robots. And one's in autonomous vehicles and the Internet of Things. We're going to hit a little bit on each of these. They're all interrelated, but there's one thing that binds them all together, and that's software. The hardware to make these things happen is fairly mundane. Right, and the Internet... A vehicle or the autonomous vehicles, they're just the same processors as are in your phone. There's no innovative hardware there. Uh, there's some sensors being hooked up to those processors. It's smart software that's making these things useful and it's really driving disruptions. So, as Christians, how do we make sense of this and how do we engage with it? That's kind of the questions I want to plant at the beginning as we explore some of these community disruptions. Well, the framework, at least out of which I operate, is that God created the world good, and people created in his image were initially good. We rebelled, our forefathers, or four parents, uh, bringing God's judgment onto ourselves and on the creation. And that God's working to redeem his creation. Uh, the critical point was Jesus, of course, coming to uh, die on the cross, redeem everything, us, and we're waiting his return. But in the meantime, that's one of the kind of critical questions in Christendom. What do we do in the meantime? At least the tradition I come from, the church is God's hands in the world. But we're to be bringing about his purposes, working to uh, establish his his goals. 
So, how do we engage with this world? Well, as a general principle, at least one of my favorite verses is Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This is pretty revolutionary back in the time, because for the Jews, of course, the act of worship was going to the temple and offering animal sacrifices. This kind of undercut that, said, no, our whole lives are really to be this act of worship. That's our work, our play, every aspect. That's what's to be the act of worship. And since we're talking about education, uh, what I want to do is really look at work, um, especially in the STEM areas this morning. So, sorry this is sideways, but I couldn't fit it all if I put it, you know, go feel free to turn your head or whatever you have to do. This is data from the latest U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics employment projections through 2026. And these are all on the web, by the way. If you want, let me know afterwards, and I can send you the URL to this. The green area is the uh, S in STEM, the sciences. The blue area is the computing technologies. The beige area, or gray, I guess, comes out here is uh, the engineering disciplines, and the red is the M, mathematics. So STEM, you know, that everyone's familiar with that acronym because you're all in education. You can see there's a big difference in where the U.S. government is projecting the jobs you're going to be. In fact, already are. We're already seeing this. The big spike there is in software developers. That's no accident um, for reasons that we'll see as we go along. Uh, second biggest is computer support specialists, because technology is creeping into all aspects of life. You need all these people to support all this stuff. And third, it, excuse me, is system, computer systems analysts. As this technology impacts on business, you need people in the businesses who understand the business side, who understand the computing side, and can figure out how to leverage the computing in a way that advances the purposes of business. And, you know, if you take all these numbers and add them all up and put them into a, uh, an aggregate form, you end up with this, where in the natural sciences, you've got roughly $60,000 60,000 jobs per year, that where you would be a natural science graduate, a chemist, a physicist, a biologist, or whatever, and you are actually going to use your, say, your your undergraduate degree in what you're working at. Computing, uh, this much larger number. Engineering, uh, roughly half of that. And mathematics, pretty small. There's there are a few, but nothing by comparison with the, the computing side. You take those numbers and turn them into percentages. You end up with this pie chart where. You more, way more than half of the, the job opportunities in STEM are in computing. This smaller thing on the side breaks out the computing into those various job descriptions we saw from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. 26, one in four STEM jobs are in software development alone. More than all of engineering combined. That word isn't getting out there very fast. 
least in my experience at Calvin, there's lots of students coming into engineering. Um, there are jobs there, but when there's four times as many students coming into engineering as there are in the computing side, and there's as many jobs in computing as the rest of engineering, in fact, way more, um, there's a, a mismatch going on there in terms of the preparation and the kind of the career guidance. The real question is, when a student graduates from college, what does the market look like? What's the competition like? So the yellow column in each of these areas is the same numbers we just saw. The orange is the number of people actually graduating with that degree as of 2015. That's the most recent data I could find at the government site. It takes them a long time to aggregate the graduation of the previous year. They lag about, about two years. So, you can see that, well, there's actually, it's not bad in engineering, they're pretty close to matching the number of uh, jobs with the number of graduates being produced. This is insane. Um, there's all these people, most of these jobs require graduate degrees, at least a master's, often a PhD. Whereas on this side, virtually all these jobs require bachelor's degrees only, and the ratio of this to this is roughly five. So I think since 2015 the numbers have gone up. Maybe they have doubled, let's say. <laughs> But even if they double, that's only up to here. Maybe the ratio is down to three or something. So there's a, there's a big problem there for companies and for us in higher ed, at least. Um, we can talk about that at the end if you like. U.S. News and World Report every year puts out a report on the kind of the career of the 100 best jobs. This is the 2018 number one is software developer. Why? Well, this is their scorecard and salary. It's, it's pretty good. Job market, that demand that we just talked about, is off the scale practically. Future growth, off the scale. Stress, well, there's some, but it's probably less than you guys get in the classroom, frankly, uh, dealing with discipline problems and principles and whatever else you have to deal with, parents probably. Uh, and work-life balance, there's at least some flexibility there in a lot of locations, especially when there's that mismatch. If you don't like the work-life balance where you are, there are other, other opportunities out there. You don't have to stay with a company that's treating you like slave labor. This is a kind of a seminal paper. This is from 2011. So this is seven years old, by Mark Andreessen. Uh, he was the guy who created the first web browser at University of Illinois. And now he's a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley, talking about how software is just consuming everything and changing everything. It's an interesting article if you, uh, if you haven't read it, it's worth reading. So this software the reason there's all this demand is there is this ongoing disruption. A number of places in which it's uh, causing big ripples is in search. So how we 
determine uh, information, facts, knowledge, and truth. Relatedly, how we communicate. How do we get our information? What are the sources we trust? It's affecting business. There are established business models that basically have been destroyed by this, and new ones emerging. AI systems are, are on the horizon that are um, going to reap big changes. Cyber warfare is probably on the horizon. Um, we can talk more about that at the end, too. These are just a few of the areas. So, if I want to find out how I fix my leaky faucet, in the old days, I would go to, if I kept the manual from where I bought the faucet, try and decipher that uh, description of the O-rings or whatever, how I would take the thing apart. These days, what do you do? You just go on YouTube and look for a video of how to. And you'll go find it. It's amazing what's out there. Am I having a heart attack? What sort of the symptoms? Right, that information's out there. Who won the first World Series? I don't know. I didn't look it up. It's an easy lookup to determine that kind of information. What is dihydrogen monoxide? Anyone seen this site? Yeah. All right, good. So you're not fooled by it. It sounds really impressive, but it's just water, right? But there's this whole website devoted to the dangers of dihydrogen monoxide and how tens of thousands of people die every year because of it. And it's this colorless, odorless substance that causes all these deaths. And it's a very alarmist looking thing, but it's just talking about water. There's a similar site out there for Great Lakes whale watching. <laughs> you can supposedly charter a boat with Captain Jim. And it's got all these testimonials, like nothing you've ever seen before. It's true. <laughs> the biggest blowhole I ever saw. <laughs> true. All right, so there's lots of information out there, both good and bad. And how do we sift through, how do we discern one from the other? This is an interesting graphic put out by uh, MediaBiasChart.com in which the horizontal axis is the liberal conservative, uh, supposedly the center, we can argue about whether the center is actually the center, uh, and the horizontal axis, sorry, the vertical axis is the top is facts, uh, fact reporting, analysis, complex analysis, analysis, then opinion, selective in opinion that's perhaps slanted or unfair through its selectivity, and then at the bottom of the view is propaganda. You can talk about, maybe we can argue about the position, you can you know, maybe find your favorite news source in here somewhere. Um, it's an interesting chart because someone has put together, taken the time to try and categorize all these different sites according to uh, their reliability and their slant. Okay, so when we have a polarized country like we unfortunately currently have, we've got some people getting their news source from here, other people getting their news source from there. Um, even here, you know, if, if there's groups getting news from here versus here, you're going to get different takes on that news. 
by virtue of the adjectives used, the headlines used. Um, how you find something that's truly reliable is a problem, and largely it's because of the breakdown in traditional media being replaced by internet media, where everyone has the voice. Right? The, the uh, where the here's the Drudge Report, right? One guy's site basically, and he has a voice that extends as far as uh, some of the other in the New York Times or as influential. So this whole communication thing, software is the undergirding of this, but we get controversy over what are the basic facts that occur in different situations, and new terms introduced, alternate facts, fake news, these kinds of things. What kind of society are we living in? Is this the Oxford English Dictionary said post-truth was the word of the year in 2016 and defined it as relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Okay. That seems to be increasingly what's happened. We're kind of cocooning ourselves in echo chambers with like-thinking people not listening to people on the other side to see if there's a valid counter-argument. And we don't let the facts get in the way of our personal beliefs or perhaps emotions. Survey found the flat earth movement is growing. How can that be in this day and age? This technology is causing lots of disruptions in the business world. So you may remember Tower Records. They were a nationwide chain that sold uh, vinyl records initially, and eventually they switched to CDs. Well, they're basically gone because of iTunes. Lots of other neighborhood record stores or CD distributors. Blockbuster. Netflix has really wiped them out. Border Books. Just this last month, Sears declared bankruptcy. All their stores aren't going there, but they're going to close lots of stores as part of a major reorganization. What's disrupting them? Amazon. Think about Sears started as a mail order catalog. Right? It was the Amazon of its day, back in a long time ago. You could buy houses from Sears. We almost bought one there in Michigan. It's kind of an interesting place. That's all. <coughs> Amazon is doing some interesting things in the business space. They've um, started opening, this is in Seattle, a store, a brick and mortar store, where you can go and get stuff and just leave. Everything is tagged with these radio frequency identity tags. You've got an Amazon card that's got radio frequency identifying information. So you walk out with the stuff through these little kiosks and it senses what you've picked up, 
who you are, charges you. No clerks involved. Some cameras to make sure people aren't like throwing stuff over the top to try to evade their sensors. But by and large, they've cut the human out of the equation. And these are, other than people who restock things that have been sold, it's a self-sustaining store. How long those people who do the restocking will be there is another question. Those people are being displaced by robots. This is a headline from, oh, this last month, or actually this month. Uh, you can go to a bar in Las Vegas and get your drink made by a robot. The Tipsy Robot is the name of the bar. No human bartender involved. You can't tell your sob stories to... I guess you can, but the robot probably won't be listening. There's great fear in Japan. Well, the great fear is in Las Vegas. In Japan, it's already happening that the concierge, the, the people who are at the front desk in the hotels, are being replaced by robots, by basically Amazon or Apple iPads, uh, or the Amazon Kindles with Alexa on it. Some kind of voice recognition where you just go and you check in, slide your credit card through the machine, and in Japan they're even using facial recognition, the camera on the tablet, to identify you, record that, keep it, match it with your credit card information, make certain you, you're who you say you are. So Amazon, or sorry, uh, not Las Vegas, there's a, the union of hotel employees is already working to try and head this off in the U.S. They see it in Japan and don't want their hotel concierge people to be replaced. Okay, so that's kind of a current um, controversy happening in Las Vegas. The Internet of Things has all these <coughs> that are connected. So smart homes is an example. You can get an Amazon Alexa or a Google Home or an Apple Home Kit, some kind of device that's sitting there listening for their trigger word. In the meantime, it's actually listening to every word you say. Um, Apple was a little better about this than the other two companies in terms of not relaying that information back to the mothership. Um, they are not as deeply invested in speech recognition as Amazon and Google. Uh, but basically, it's a device that you've invited into your home through your purchase of it. And it's now, well, Alexa, uh, turn on the dishwasher, or uh, close the windows. It's cold in here. I just heard on NPR this morning an advertisement for Anderson Windows that are connected. Right? Smart windows that you can open, close, lock. Right? You drive down your, did I lock, close my bedroom window? From my phone, you can close and lock your windows if you have invested in this smart technology. Whirlpool, uh, companies like that are building these, these into your washers and dryers and 
thermostats and ovens. Did I turn off the oven before I went on vacation, right? Don't have to worry about that anymore. You can just look on your phone, find out is the oven on it, and shut it off if it is. With these smart devices, that's the vision that you can access these things from anywhere. Smart cars, more to come on that, but that's just the first step. Smart homes, smart cars that can communicate, not uh, just with you, but with each other. And the, if you adopt the hype, smart everything talking to everything else. Now always there's, there's limitations to be put in place, there's security issues that have to be resolved, there's lots of nitty-gritty details that have to be hammered out here so that if I drive up with my phone, I can't uh, get into your car. Right? And there's, there's actually a, a popular video going around the internet right now of thieves breaking into a Tesla. They had somehow gotten near enough to the person's key fob for their tablet to listen in on the frequency being broadcast by the key fob their tablet software could reproduce that frequency. Once the person left, they got into the Tesla, started it, drove off. Okay, so there's lots of security issues to be resolved with all these smart devices to make them resistant. AI is coming. This is a, you know, a few years back where Watson won the Jeopardy competition between um, oh, what's his name? Uh, I've got it down here. But Ken Jennings. And uh, so Ken Jennings, I think, had won the most consecutive games. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name on the right. He had won the most cash ever. So they had the two of them play against IBM's Watson. And you can see who the winner was. And Jennings, for his answer, Parenthesized at the bottom, I for one welcome our new computer overlords. Right? Realizing that the game is over. And this is just responding to the, the, the voice as Alex Trebek would read questions and so on and so forth. It isn't trivial this, the doing this game stuff. Uh, using the same knowledge base that Watson was using. IBM is now taking this into medical. So Watson is now a medical advisor to many doctors and hospitals. Many doctors are using it as kind of a, a second advisor, if you would. And there's been some recent, uh, just in, this, in the past couple months, of these kind of systems that could do a better job of recognizing breast cancer than a human doctor. So looking at an MRI or a, a, a mammogram scan, the machine AI system was doing a better job of recognizing potential cancers without any, without the false positives, as a, a better than a human doctor. And so doctors seem like we're largely ceding that to the AI system. Relatedly, uh, Google's AlphaGo beat the world's Go champion, not maybe a year or so back. 
Um, Go is thought to be way too difficult a problem. Right? We, uh, Deep Blue beat um, uh, Kasparov in chess back in 1997. Well, there's a finite enough number of moves in chess that that was thought to be not so hard a problem to solve. But Go, because of the, in some ways the simplicity and the increased number of moves, uh, was thought to be much harder and would be 20 or 30 years before an AI system could build it. But that barrier fell very quickly. This is uh, Google's AlphaGo system. It, again, defeated the world champion. Um, in that process, it made moves no human would have made. And the humans watching, the, the Go masters, didn't understand why it was doing what it was doing. But in the end, it was winning strategy to make those moves. More recently, there's a new version called AlphaGo Zero that just started with the basic rules of Go. And then two of these systems played each other. And this curve here is their ranking on the kind of World Go ability as they played each other. And in like you know, three days, it had reached the same level as the initial AlphaGo, and within yeah, about 20 days, he had reached the master level, and through no human interaction, just by training itself, it now produces different strategies than any human has ever done. So without human intervention or involvement, this thing learned on its own to play the game better than the human game. Those kind of systems are frightening in some ways, uh, but they're going to come into the commercial, into the everyday life over time. Self-driving cars uh, are kind of interesting. The first 10 auto accidents when Google was deploying these around Mountain View, California, were all human error. The car was driving according to the rules, observing the speed limit, things like that. It got rear-ended by a human who was driving too fast, not observing the speed limit, issues like that. Communicating cars far on the horizon. Well, let me go back one second. These are already here, by the way. Uh, if you're willing to pay for Mercedes, you can buy Super Cruise. And if you're stuck in a traffic jam, you turn on Super Cruise, it'll lock onto the car ahead of you, and when it moves, you move. You can read your paper or whatever you're going to do, grade your assignments. So that kind of thing works up to 30 miles per hour. And, uh, and that's commercially, so there's no futurism there. The communicating cars thing is interesting because this is, it's not commercially available yet, but it's coming pretty quickly. If there's a bad traffic accident, pick how far ahead, 50 miles that it's made up. The cars that are stopped there are going to broadcast. I'm stuck, I can't, I'm not moving. 
And for whatever reason, they're going to be broadcasting that. Cars between them are going to relay that information back. And if the cars at the front start to move, that information is going to get relayed back. Well, you can be 50 or 100 miles or whatever. This information is going to make it back to your car. And as you approach an intersection, your car can make the decision. Do I continue or do I get off and compute a different route? What's the shortest path to my destination based on the currently available information? This is a different kind of network than the Internet. The Internet is based on client servers, right? My web browser, when I go to buy something on Amazon, I'm connecting to a server on Amazon. My browser is acting as a client on my behalf. This is peer-to-peer. -peer. There's no servers involved, or you can think of it as every car as being its own server. They're all peers talking to one another. This is the same architecture, actually, that's underlying kind of a new kid on the block, blockchain. Blockchain is this distributed ledger that came about through trying to make Bitcoin uh, impervious to attacks. And so every transaction that goes into a blockchain is authenticated reliably, it's all traceable, and it's distributed across everyone who's participating in the blockchain in such a way that um, no one owns it. There's no central bank in charge of it. Companies are really seeing a lot of potential in this. Um, things like the salmonella outbreak that... Um, um, Chipotle experienced a couple years ago. People were saying if this was in place through their supply chain, you could trace the origin of that salmonella back to the exact farm where it came from, where the, the corrupted uh, cilantro or whatever it was, tomatoes, whatever brought the salmonella into the system. You could identify it to that degree of precision. So, Companies are really getting into this. This is the kind of hot job description at the moment in Silicon Valley. They're falling all over themselves and paying, I think, the median employment, uh, median salary for a blockchain developer was $184,000. Supply and demand, not many people there. They command a huge salary. So back to the self-driving cars, that was kind of a little side. What could go right or wrong? Well, you could reduce traffic deaths. Currently drunk drivers and uh, people falling asleep at the wheel or whatever, human error. Take that out of the equation and you could make a big dent in traffic deaths. Well, what happens to car insurance in this situation? People still need insurance, or does the company who made the car, who's liable in the event of an accident taking place? Is it the software developer who wrote the software for it? Is it the company who sold you the car? Are you liable as the owner? All those questions are still up in the air. What's going to happen to all the displaced drivers in the driving industry? I'm told that truck driving is the single biggest employer in the U.S. What happens to all those people? I mean, Volvo and Tesla both have semi-tractor trailers 
cabs that are self-driving now. They're just waiting permission, basically, to deploy them. Those things come on the market, what happens to all the drivers? It's pretty tough to retrain people with low-skilled labor in a way that's going to help them survive. There aren't a lot of people asking those questions, it doesn't seem like. How do we manage this transition that's seemed inevitable? There's a book out by David Sanger called The Perfect Weapon, and it talks about cyber uh, espionage, cyber warfare. These are basically the, the themes he advances. This is an inexpensive way for an impoverished company or country, like North Korea, for example, to attack a rich country. Like we've got weapons galore, we've got, but they were able to hack into Sony and steal the movie in which, you know, the two comedians were supposedly going to assassinate the leader of North Korea. It's hard to identify the perpetrators of this because of the anonymity that's available on the internet, the ability to spoof where you're coming from. It's hard to defend against. Our software systems all seem to have security holes that people can exploit. And the ramifications of this, we get attacks against infrastructure, election meddling, theft of intellectual property. Um, when your intellectual property is primarily software or software-based somehow, digital form, it's really easy to steal. This is kind of an interesting video if you haven't seen it. This is the latest robot atlas from Boston Dynamics. What is evident from this angle is, note that these are offset. And if the robot just charged through the middle, it wouldn't make it up onto the top one. And the robot actually had to jump from, move from side to side in order to do that. That's all being done through vision. It's not pre-programmed. Okay, so that's just one example of how, uh, basically driven by the Department of Defense dollars, research investment, uh, we're getting developments like that that are kind of frightening. Software is what's driving these changes. You may say, well, let's avoid all that. We shouldn't be working for the defense industry. We shouldn't be. Let's kind of become Luddites. Let's, uh, we could always, you know, go join the Amish or something like that. Just reject all this technology stuff. Well, would you rather have a world in which Christians are uninvolved in creating the software that's disrupting everything? Or would you rather have Christians at the table? They could be there lending an ethical voice in the circles they're developing this. Questioning, should we do this? Right? In Silicon Valley, the, the mantra is, if we can do it, let's do it. That's what's gotten Facebook and the others into trouble, creating these... Uh, well, for instance, Facebook got in trouble because of their experiment 
where they were using the users of their product as experimental subjects, trying out different presentation techniques. When it became discovered and publicized, so they were never ashamed because, of course, it's negative publicity. They got caught doing it. We need Christians there so that it doesn't even get to the point where they can get caught saying, we shouldn't do this. So what skills are needed? Well, software development involves designing and implementing algorithms, which are just solutions to problems written in a way that someone else can follow the same instructions. So a recipe is an algorithm. So algorithmic thinking is a key skill for all this. Most of the problems that we're encountering have never been solved before. This isn't engineering in the usual sense where you're going to build a bridge across a river and there's lots of other bridges out there to copy or to model your bridge after. These are things that if, if there's a solution already out there, you just go out and buy the software. It's a lot cheaper than developing it from scratch. So creativity is another key skill that's needed in this. You have to be able to create original solutions to these unsolved problems. So, the best preparation, at least at present, is a bachelor's degree in computer science if you want one of these kind of careers. There are kind of four big ideas in algorithmic thinking. The first is sequential execution, which if you think about a recipe, you follow those steps. And you do them in order, or your cake goes flat, or the cookies burn, or whatever. Conditional execution is you only perform some of the steps if some condition is true. So if statements, if any of you teach programming, are kind of the key idea here. Repeated execution, the ability to do things more than once if necessary. And abstraction is the ability to kind of hide nitty-gritty details under a name invoke that name and you get all the details. We'll see some examples of this in just a moment. So, for sequential execution, if I wanted to make a banana milkshake, this is a recipe I found on the internet. Peel the banana, add the banana milk ice cubes to a blender, turn the blender on for 30 seconds, drink. Okay? Pretty easy. What happens if I skip step one? If I can't follow up, I'm not a linear thinker, and somehow skip over step one, go straight to step, step two, then I've got a problem. What if I skip step two? Well, I've got a banana. I don't have a very cold drink. It's just stuck. I've got mush in my blender, problem cleaning it out. What if I rearrange my steps somehow? The order in which I do the steps can matter. So these are all kind of key ideas behind this notion of sequential execution. Conditional execution occurs in life all the time. We're driving here, we probably drove through intersections, and there's a traffic light or a traffic sign. If it's a stop sign, we have to stop. If it's a yield sign, we slow down and look. We don't stop unless there's traffic coming. So. You can have kind of nested logic with this if-else scenario. 
that you do this if the initial condition is true, and you do this if this condition is true, but this one's false, and you do this if the initial condition is false. Wait, sorry, the second condition is false. And there's repeated execution. So if the traffic light is red or it's yellow, I should probably stop. Now I'm stuck at this light, what do I do? Well, it's red. I wait, recheck the light. Is it red? Wait, recheck the light. Still red? Wait, recheck the light. Sometimes you get people doing other things instead of rechecking. They're looking on their phone or something. And of course then the light turns green. It's not red, it's not yellow. But their car isn't moving, people behind start honking. They wake up, check the light, oh it's green. Right. Sometimes you have to get interrupted in whatever you're doing here in order to, for this to work. I could just say import recipes and make banana milkshake using my banana milkshake recipe from earlier. That make banana milkshake is a, a name that hides the details. So in programming language terminology, we think of that as a sub-program, a function that I'm performing. So I can define the function, make banana milkshake, as peel the banana, put ingredients back in the blender, blend 30 seconds. I'm hiding this level of detail under this name. I can just invoke that name, and those steps happen. A person who does that doesn't even have to know what the definition does. Right? If we if you're teaching programming and you have a problem that involves a square root, we just call it a square root function. Nobody even knows the square root algorithms anymore because they're off in libraries and not even taught at this point. You can use a name like that and not have to worry about how it's being computed under the hood. So where do students learn these ideas? Sequence, selection, repetition, abstraction. If you say college, there's research that suggests college is too late. But there's kind of neural pathways that need to be plowed much earlier in order for these ideas to really stick. Uh, one of the things that's been shown is that the best predictor for success in an introductory computer science course in college is previous programming experience. People who've had those neural pathways plowed do better than people who don't, on average. So, high school, middle school, K-6? Well, in Britain, the answer is yes to all three of those last Britain has instituted a K-12 computer science curriculum that's a, been a massive overhaul of their whole educational system. Personally for me, and I think for Christians in general, we should be asking the question, for whom is college too late a time to start? If that prior programming experience is the best predictor, who are the people with that prior programming experience? They tend to be what we'll call privileged 
white males like myself, who maybe they have wealthy parents who sent them off to a summer camp where they got some prior programming experience. Maybe they went to a suburban school where there was an AP computer science course. Somehow they got that prior programming experience that isn't generally available. So corresponding, there's this correlation between lack of privilege and poor performance in those introductory CS courses. Students who are from underrepresented groups, ethnic minorities, women, tend to have a harder time in those courses. They are less likely to have had those experiences that prepare you for success. So CS careers, these are the great opportunities. You saw the job opportunities out there. This is a way to break the cycle of poverty, but only if students actually have the opportunity to do this before they reach college. CS for All was started in 2016 as a national initiative to provide all high school experience uh, students with the opportunity to study CS. You don't have to study it, but every high school student has to have the opportunity to if they have the opportunity, they can try it. It works for them good, doesn't. They've tried it, didn't work very well. That they at least have the chance. So this is the whitehouse.gov page that, where that was announced. And uh, this is really out of a sense of we're leaving behind this whole generation of students, especially inner city students but not exclusively. How can we break that cycle of poverty if the future is all about software and technology? There is a website, csforall.org. I'll have all the URLs at the end, by the way, so you don't have to worry about them. But that's a website devoted to this whole thing with curriculum uh, opportunities and exercises. Los Angeles Unified has implemented this. They're kind of a, uh, a use case, a nice test case for how this can be done in public school setting. And in Chicago now, it's actually, they've made computer science a graduation requirement for high school. Which is kind of interesting. So every student there has to take some computer science course over the course of their 9 to 12 years. So there's lots of resources out there. The Computer Science Teachers Association is a national organization for high school CS teachers. Uh, there's the Scratch, Scratch Ed, and Scratch Junior sites. There's Hour of Code and Code.org. There's Girls Who Code. There's Raspberry Pi, Microbit. These are all some examples of resources out there that you can build curriculum around. Computer Science Teachers Association is this uh, organization associated with the Association for Computing Machinery, which is a professional organization for computer scientists. They have an entire K-12 to uh, 12 curriculum of age-appropriate exercises for uh, how to introduce computer science ideas. Obviously, you don't teach kindergartners Java programming, right? But you can start them on these ideas uh, using the, the activities and exercises, lesson plans and the like. 
there in that same. Scratch is a pretty cool tool from MIT, and it's kind of designed or aimed at middle schoolers. You drag and drop these blocks into a code area, and that stack of blocks makes up your program. Activate and animate the cat. You can do all sorts of things with that. Scratch Junior is a simplified version of that for K to, uh, K to 6 students. And there's a great lesser known teacher's resource called Scratch Ed from Harvard that get organized as a forum where teachers can ask questions. Uh, if any of you are in that space, Scratch Ed's a pretty nice resource. It's got um, lesson plans, it's got ready-made PowerPoint presentations, um, references to books, all kinds of stuff out there. Code.org is kind of this overarching organization that has recently offered a whole bunch of teaching, teacher training activities. Uh, and one of the things they sponsor is the Hour of Code every year, every December. You've probably heard of that. So they are the organization behind that. And their website is just code.org. Um, they've got a lot, this is all scrolling stuff, so I can only get the top part of the thing on the slide, but you get the sense of it. There's a lot of stuff there that you can check out. Girls Who Code is kind of a nice thing. If you've got females that you can get interested in technology, it's an organization you can start a club. They've got a set curriculum where girls choose a uh, thing they want to explore in detail. It could be music, games, web design, fashion, uh, based on the area they choose, they do tutorials online, self-guided, in each of these areas. And they work at their own pace. They can save, stop, pick up the next, uh, you know, next time the club meets. It's a, a decent curriculum, and it's a way to introduce young women to technology. And since it's all girls, they can kind of build a social identity with this uh, other set of like-minded girls. Raspberry Pis are really cool devices. Full working computers. Uh, fit in the palm of your hand. It's really amazing. I mean, kids think a computer has to be something big uh, just because of the usual desktops. But have this little tiny thing and you can get at the actual you know, processor and the memory card. And the, you can, it's, a tact, it's almost like a mathematical manipulative but for computing topics. I don't think you've seen microbits. They're from uh, Britain that uh, they give you this little hardware thing with two push buttons, A and B, and then this grid of LEDs that you can activate. It's got accelerometers on it, like a phone. It's got a whole bunch of different sensors on it. So you can do some really fun things with that. Uh, from the microbit website, if you have this device plugged in through USB into your computer, you can actually build programs using a Scratch-like language. They've got a little emulator here that you can debug your programs with. Once you've got them debugged, you can do it in either the block language or if you want to teach JavaScript, you can do it that way. 
Once you've got that, you can actually download this to your microbit, and then it's stored in the flash memory on that microbit device. Anytime the microbit's powered, the program's running. It's kind of a fun thing. Kids can create wearable computing with this. It can be a flash. In this case, it's showing the string hello. So this is the O from hello is that scrolled by, H-E-L-L-O. Advanced placement, there's two opportunities these days, the traditional computer science A and the computer science principles course, the new one. That newer one has seven big ideas. That one, computing is a creative activity. That abstraction, that idea we talked about, is a central problem-solving technique. Data and information facilitate the creation of knowledge. Algorithms are solutions to computational problems. Programming enables problem-solving, human expression, knowledge creation. The internet is having this profound effect. It's the first of many disruptions that we saw. And computing has this global impact for good and bad. We need to bring ethical standards into play to guide it. These are all kind of key ideas in that computer science principles course. And note, programming is only one of the seven. You can do programming as heavy or as light as you want. If you want it to be more programming intensive, you put that at the beginning of the course. If you want to de-emphasize it, you make it the last thing. The CSA course is traditional uh, programming kind of AP computer science. It's currently in Java, so there's object-oriented techniques there. If you score well in that CSA exam, you typically get out of the CS1, the introductory CS course at the university level. And probably this is the best way to provide kids with a prior programming experience. There are others. Uh, we're almost out of time, but think about you know what are, if there are ones that, that we haven't talked about and you know of, please come up and talk to me afterwards. I'd love to include them. So to summarize, software is eating our world, according to Mark Andreessen. Most of the STEM careers are in this area. There's big disruptions happening societal to our society, and there's more coming. Ethical software developers, I think from a Christian perspective, are especially needed. Developing software requires this notion of algorithmic thinking, and for many students, at least, college is too late at time to introduce those. So I'll leave you with kind of a question. How is your school preparing your students for this 21st century, given what's happening? Here are the resources uh, that we talked about, the various URLs, and thank you all for coming.